Oh, it's truly wonderful to be here again to see a lovely, fulsome audience. <laughs> and I believe our first uh, canine audience member, that's a particular <laughs> welcome from me. I'll, um, I'll bring mine next time as well. We'll see how they, how they interact. But uh, I think there'll be enough bite on the panel with uh, our, our humanoid um, uh, panelists this evening. Um, but before I introduce them, I just want to put in um, a heartfelt and significant thank you to Brooklyn Public Library and all the, the staff that I've really had such pleasure working with uh, the last months, uh, bringing this program uh, in its new iteration to a new home, um, expanding, growing its audience and, and developing it here with the Brooklyn Public Library. Um, a special uh, thanks to Meredith and to to, to Joel um, uh, Whitney, with whom I've worked very closely on, on bringing the program here, um, and also a welcome to and uh, 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 to to uh, Jakob um, Laszlo, who's the newly appointed vice president of arts and culture at the Brooklyn Public Library, which is not just this magnificent uh, venue here, but uh, um, uh, uh, 58, 57 branch libraries as well. Um, and uh, uh, I, I understand that this is uh, Jakob's first event here in the Dweck. So what an honor is that? Mm -hmm. And uh, look forward to, um, to working with him. Okay, so uh, it's always fun thanking people. Um, you know, one believes in karma, it might come back, you never know. <laughs> um, great. My panelists this evening in the season finale, uh, Christopher Stackhouse is a poet. In fact, uh, we're sandwiched by poets here this evening. Um, mm -hmm. It's our, we'll, we'll, Christina and I will stand up for the prosaic, <laughs> but we're, we're, we're sandwiched by two distinguished poets. Christopher Stackhouse, who's um, uh, on the advisory board at Fence, uh, who is uh, also um, uh, on the uh, a contributing editor at uh, Bomb magazine, um, and, and a distinguished poet and an essayist on the visual arts. Um, and he is also an instructor at Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Uh, Christina Key is a regular contributor to artcritical.com. Uh, she's a practicing artist, and she's also a curator of collections for the William Louis Dreyfus Foundation in uh, Mount Kisco, New York. And uh, Monica de la Torre is uh, a poet, as I've already mentioned. Uh, she uh, was until last week um, and uh, one of the editors at Bomb Magazine, where she served for uh, just shy of nine years. Um, she's leaving to devote herself m more to her own work and to take up a teaching position at Brown University. She has a collection of poems coming out in September from Ugly Duckling Press uh, <laughs> with the title of, I'm going to remember it, I'm going to remember it, uh, The Happy End, All Are Welcome. Yes, <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> There's that great moment where uh, Pablo Neruda was asked by somebody in an audience to read one of his own early poems. Mm. And he said, you know, I've, the truth of the matter is, I'm afraid, I, I know everyone loves those love poems, but I've actually forgotten them. <laughs> and then the entire audience recited it back to him. So oh. um, there you are. I remember I the title that. of your collection. That's a, s mm -hmm. a close second to the Pablo <laughs> Neruda experience. <laughs> Wonderful. Anybody here at the review panel for the first time ever? Yes? 
and the, the dog didn't put his paw up, and I know, <laughs> I know for a fact that he's here for the first time. So for your benefit, and also to remind the rest of us what we're doing, we've been to see an embarrassingly large quantity of exhibitions, um, but you'll see that it sort of fits into the usual format, remit of the review panel, uh, in which we usually look at four exhibitions. We have PowerPoint presentations that visually remind us of what we've looked at for the first two. The panel discussed among themselves. The audience then come in with, uh, comes in with uh, uh, responses and questions. Um, um, hopefully more responses than questions, because otherwise it drags on a bit. Um, and then we repeat the exercise for the remaining two exhibitions. Uh, so uh, as you'll see, it will work out, even though it looks like there are six exhibitions. Um, two are of one artist and um, two are of two artists, but one work each. So it does kind of work, <laughs> hopefully. So um, let's, uh, let's now take advantage panel of these lovely swiveling chairs <laughs> so we can turn around with our backs to the audience and see the PowerPoint presentation, please. For the first two exhibitions we're talking about, uh, first three exhibitions, sorry, Leslie Hewitt, Collective Stance at Sculpture Center, and two exhibitions of Rodney McMillian, one at Studio Museum Harlem, the Studio Museum in Harlem, and the other at MoMA PS1 in Queens. Mm -hmm. So I think quite a lot of commonality between these exhibitions, and th that will, I'm, I'm sure, come across in the discussion. Um, two into three dimensions being one, and representations of uh, e experience drawing on, on political and um, social themes. Um, but let's start with Leslie Hewitt's exhibition at, uh, at Sculpture Center in Queens. Um, so we've got that central organization of minimal abstract constructions in, in white, steel, um, juxtaposed in some way with, with photographs, and then sandwiched by two video installations, um, actually more like slideshow installations. Um, um, so we have a sense of structures being social structures and a sense of structures being literal abstract constructions. Um, Christina, did, did the did, did it feel like one medium or dimension was in some way privileged over the other? Did it feel like the main event was photographic and that the sculpture was um, like a nice way of transitioning from one to the other? Or did it feel like perhaps those sculptures are what carried the real weight and the, the photographs were informing our, uh, giving us a key, a way to read them? That's uh, a good question. For me, um, the central feature of the exhibition was really the film. Um, it was certainly what lingered in my head. Um, I'm hoping the sound's okay. Someone will say if not. It's a little distorted. Okay. All right. Let me know as it goes. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, but the, um, yeah, for me, it was really the film that, that carried the meaning of the show. The, the sculptures felt a little bit, um, the link between the sculptures and the film, I thought, was, was tenuous. I mean, I, I felt I knew what the artist was getting at in a way, and I appreciated the, the kind of patience required to really work with the sculptures and carrying that patience into the viewing of the films. I found very, very interesting and, and useful as a way of approaching the show. Uh, but uh, for me, I, I really felt the emphasis was the film. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, Christopher, did, did, uh, I was reminded a little bit of being in the 
Gemälde Gallery in Berlin, which is this hmm. beautiful art collection, which has this um, enormous, uh, almost empty room between them of um, where there actually, I think, is uh, a, a sculpture by that um, um, by um, uh, Daniel by uh, famous French sculptor does stripes. Buren? Buren, Daniel Buren. I think there is a sort of Daniel Buren thing in the middle somehow. But um, um, but at the same time, I found them quite rich, rewarding sculptures, and I, I found myself um, wanting to believe in a connection between uh, the sculptural and, and the photographic. I mean, the, the photographs are pretty abstracted as well, aren't they? So how did you get on? How did you fare with the sculptural component? Well, I should actually concede that I didn't. This is the only sh uh, exhibition that I did not uh, make it out to, but I'm very familiar with, relatively, I shouldn't say very, mm -hmm. relatively familiar with Leslie's work. And I've met her, the first time I came across the work uh, was an inter interesting space at the Des Moines Art Center in Iowa. And, um, and that's a very interesting place to go see work, um, primarily because of the way the collection is, uh, is situated, um, everything is together. So you walk into a room and you see, you know, uh, a Carl Andre with a Louise Bourgeois with an Andy Warhol in one room. You see a Gonzalez Torres with, uh, you know, a boys. Like they're all situated in the same kind of in the same space throughout the museum, and it's a lovely museum. And at the time, Gilbert Vicario, who was the curator there mm -hmm. back then, um, said, "Hey, I got this." young artist, Leslie Hewitt, whose work you should see. We have a few pieces in a room. And they were these leaning photographs. Um, they leaned with objects that kind of um, led out into the space, either propped behind them um, or laid out in front of them, or um, they, they function as kind of prop pieces with framed photographs. So I was expecting to see something like that when the uh, images came up. Um, I also saw her give a lecture on Carl Andre um, hmm. and the Artist on Artist series at DIA maybe a year or two ago. Um, and that was a very interesting um, uh, juxtaposition. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I noticed about her work, and I think in some ways this kind of ties in, uh, will tie in with Rodney, is that there is this, um, this sublimation of uh, of a socio-political positioning um, through a kind of, through minimalism. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of reframing the language of minimalist sculpture, minimalist art, the, you know, the conceptual thrust of, of minim minimalism and post-minimalism and so on. Um, and I'm always amazed at how well she manages to do that in such an elegant way, but that manages to be legible, um, especially for certain segments of the art-going population that are attuned to the subtleties. Um, and she's, I mean, on one level, there's this, you know, hugely complex um, conversation about seeing, about perception, about um, reception of, mm -hmm. of aesthetic ideas. And then on the other hand, there's a very kind of blatant, um, uh, kind of a blatant, bold um, asking of uh, what do you believe, what, 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 how does what, do you, what you see um, uh, uh, um, influence what you believe? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, sub, the, the layered subtext is, is 
and I think we're going to come back to this subject again, and, and I don't want to belabor it, but the, I think one of the strata underneath that is a question of race and color and, you know, and, and aesthetics, really looking at how aesthetics affect our um, perception of the social. Right. Mm -hmm. The whiteness then of the sculpture, Monica, mm -hmm. is that uh, axiomatic? <laughs> we, uh, is, that, is, that, is it the whiteness uh, of the sculpture or the minimal steelness and the, 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 the sense of a pristine structure that, mm -hmm. that um, does, does the issue, is there an issue of race sort of undermining, um, not undermining, or enriching? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, what, what do you think, do you see race playing a role in the whiteness of the sculpture? I, I definitely see race playing um, a role, a very important one. Uh, but before I get to that, I'd like to just bring up a few issues um, in terms of uh, separating the bodies of work, right? The sculptures <laughs> and the photographs. I think one of the most interesting things that Leslie Hewitt has contributed as an artist is, and it's, it's very consistent throughout her entire body of work, is that dissolution of the boundaries between photographic images and sculptures and object, objects as we relate to in social space. So I, for her, a photograph is a sculpture. And her layering of images in her constructions, the ones that are more prevalent, I mean, this body of work for me also was very surprising. I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. to walk into the sculpture center and see these corners, these white minimalist sculptures. Um, but when she layers different images, she's collapsing time and reminding the viewer that what they're looking at is this object that has had a very specific role in community, in history, in, 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 in private and public space. And I see these sculptures in a way as pointing to the borders of the photographs that she's often mm -hmm. used in the 70s and 80s, mm -hmm. um, which also relate to, w which relate, relate to race in many ways, but one way in which they relate to is precisely that image there. Um, in the stills, calibration, mm. um, it's, a, it's a black man holding this chart, this calibration chart, that is obviously trying to standardize a way of seeing. Mm. And I think a lot of what Leslie does is pointing to the act of seeing as well and looking at these images, and she doesn't want you to suspend this belief and just get lost in the image. She's mm -hmm. always telling you, this image exists, and even those the, the white borders are loaded with mm -hmm. racial connotations. Um, and they also speak to a period, because now photography doesn't have that, right? So it harkens back to that era that she's very interested in, the 60s and 70s. Um, I, perhaps this is a roundabout, roundabout way to address this issue, but, but I think no, I think it, no, it's not right Technologies about Technologies of it's seeing, mm, right? Mm, and mm. what those technologies of seeing tend to overlook is one of those things that she's very interested in. So the 60s and 70s, both in, in a funny way, um, the period in which the semiotic structural and, 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 and systems of language uh, become more and more active in the way people think about um, images and, and construct images. But at the same time, it it's an era that... Uh, is relatively innocent compared to our own in terms of um, accepting the the implicit uh, truth and universalism of 
photographic images. Mm. So is, is, that, is that, therefore, that revisiting then in a way of, of minimal art might be uh, construed as going back to a similar source to um, photography in its, uh, in, a, in a certain, photography in a different frame that's represented in, in, in the historical period of photography that you, you, you alert us to the fact that she's concerned with. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Does that then become more of, well, it is obviously a more of a conceptual than a formal connection between um, minimal sculpture and the interrogation of the truth in photography? Does that make sense to any of the panel? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm listening, and so I'm going to riff a little bit, but um, I'm just trying to digest everything. But um, I guess I get, get the sense, too, with the photography that, and I think this is, yeah, I mean, Roland Barthes talked about this, uh, the, that, that, um, that kind of uh, liberatory uh, um, engagement with the photograph where at one on one note on one at one moment at one point you feel very intimate and knowing like you have a kind of intimate knowledge of an object or of a subject based on the fact that you're looking at and often repetitively shown images in a photograph or a photographic image right so there's that and at the same time you're really kind of kept out of what that image is and what it means in the physical present, right? And so if you think about that, and this is the thing that, one of the things I find kind of brilliant about what she's doing because she's not talking necessarily about um, uh, current events, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, but it does kind of, if you, if you follow the, the, the conversation that she's having, the, the kind of discursive pathways that she's kind of opening, you think about what it is, what you see, and technology. Speak, you know, speaking of contemporary technology, what you see, um, it can be mitigated, you know, or or shaped by the context in which you see it, mm -hmm. both physically, um, you know, psychologically, socially, um, your your education, you know, mm -hmm. you know how you've been trained to look, you know, or how you haven't been trained to look. Um, I think about the image of. Um, the gentleman in South Carolina who was shot in the back by the uh, police officer, they pulled him over for a, a broken tail light, turns out. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's an interesting moment, which she's not using, and I think there probably are some artists who are using it, but there's, it's an interesting moment because if you look at uh, the stills from it, or just one specific still where the cop is like, you know, pointing the gun to the guy and he has his back turned, um, and if you kind of went in stages and flicked through it, you could see the guy turning around as he gets shot, and then he falls. And mm -hmm. So at any moment in that, that that image could be read like multiple ways. And depending on how you see the you know the blue the officer in the blue uniform versus the dark figure in baggy jeans pulling his jeans up as he's running, those are images that, as discrete images, have resonance and meaning. Right, and then they're juxtaposed, and then in some in some cases uh, all along the web they've been isolated, and so what you know there's this thing about you know when you isolate an image and you can take take it out of context, so much depends on 
your social position and your education. The same thing can be applied, what she's doing, to artwork that has really no, it, it's out of, in a way it's out of context, right? Mm -hmm. So if you took a picture of one of these photographs and you did, I mean one of these sculptures, and you didn't know like that one, and you didn't know who did it, mm -hmm. and you didn't know anything about art, would it be a work of art, right? Uh, and what would be appealing about it, you know? And what kind, what kind of conditioning does it take to look at something and make snap judgments about it when you have no real relationship other than uh, this, again, liberatory effect of being distanced by a photograph or by photographic mediation? But she's clearly cognizant of um, where she's showing. Um, um, she's, uh, context is crucial. Uh, to minimal art and, and to her minimal art. So it's the sculpture center, and they are beautifully executed, um, very pared down, uh, but somehow at, at a certain level referential, um, streamlined minimal sculptors, sculptures. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, they the, the, the clean, beautiful, white-coated uh, steel plates again in this uh, exquisitely renovated uh, uh, post-industrial mm -hmm. structure with the uh, gorgeous kind of brick work all over the place um, and, and the sort of clear story and high uh, vaulted s uh, nave of, uh, um, space. Um, you know, that's, um, that's a sort of archetypal sculptural type of experience. You could be at a sort of a dia type space. So um, to, to have that and then sandwiched by... Uh, Photographs that um, don't necessarily have a, a clear-cut, explicit reading, um, but probably the the paired the this the one called untitled structures, um, mm -hmm. the presentation with these pairs of images um, shown in rotation with certain motifs recurring on different sides. But um, that's the most resonant, isn't it? Um, and so. Um, it's it's hard not to feel that uh, yeah you, you when when you talk about um, the out of context not reading a sculpture but it's it's in context so we, our experience mm -hmm. of it um, those of us go to the mm -hmm. see the show is is of um, uh, very well behaved sculpture in <laughs> a in a sculpture center mm -hmm. um, and, and then it's um, um, but it's it's meaning being disrupted in some way right. by images of a place that's way beyond um, the, the remit of sculpture, mm -hmm. um, and yet, in its pared-downness and its textures, there's a there is, I think, a sculptural quality in those photographs. So, mm -hmm. how do we how do we pack it? How do we digest all that, Monica? Is that uh I don't. I mean, I'm very interested in what you're saying, and, and really, I, I f regardless of who the author of the sculptures is, yes. And when they were done, if they're doing one thing, mm -hmm. for sure, we know, is that they're activating the space, right? right. They're, a they're creating space around them, and they're activating the space. And it's very particular, or peculiar, that, 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 that they're white. And they're just by their very nature, if you enter into that space, you have to navigate your way around them. So in a way, they're determining the path that you take mm. in order to access the images that are being shown in both video installations. Mm -hmm. So at the most basic level, mm. they've already determined the way in which, or they've activated the space in which you will consume 
or process the images that she's presenting. Right. And that, to me, is, is key. Yeah. Because this, the, the, the video installations, we have to go into a darkened closet, essentially, mm -hmm. to see them. Um, right. We, what's, why does one need to be in a sculpture center with a brick wall and a massive <laughs> ceiling to go into a cubicle and see something? Mm -hmm. uh, but then, in between, as if mm -hmm. to sort of the lungs um, that, that, that animate mm -hmm. these, uh, whatever mm -hmm. organ these dark spaces are, um, has this kind of lightness and whiteness and, and, mm -hmm. and precision mm -hmm. going on in it. That's, that's a nice way of putting it. Um, I think I had a slightly different and, quite frankly, slightly less sophisticated read of the show in the sense that I found it more creative than questioning. And I understand that her background is very much about questioning the imagery and um, working with this archive that she had. And, of, I, I, you know, of course, the whole history of, of you know, um, how photography is used, how it's not used. I think it's all implicit in the work. But what I felt and what resonated with me when I left the show was that these very straightforward minimalist sculptures in a way that um, you know, are a very clear reference to a certain way of seeing, a certain way of looking. Um, I think they really establish within the viewer, um, as you say, a sensation of the space, but also um, a return to, I mean, it's a more subtle awareness of things, isn't it? When we, that's what we like about minimalist work. It takes us to a different sort of mental place. And then that awareness carried into the films was for me a very beautiful thing that I, I found um, very moving in the sense that, you know, the sculptures make you think of being in the round or of one voice speaking to another, of one station corresponding to another. And then in the photographs, you suddenly, slowly over the time, I'm thinking really of the, the film with the untitled structures. Mm -hmm. um, you have the sensation of, of the protagonists being within these various spaces and you start to, at least I started to feel, what was their subtle sensation of these places, of these mm -hmm. things. And so it's, in a way it's not a very sophisticated reading because what I really just got out of it was um, a kind of heightened awareness of an imaginative space uh, that, mm. you know, what did people go through doing mm. with, you know, the overall mm. theme of the show, the great migration. And I mean, how fascinating, how beautiful to think of how those subtle sensations would have been. Mm. Mm. So for me, it was really establishing subtlety was, was really, a, that mm. was what those sculptures, mm. how they, yes. they served me. Right. Establishing subtlety. Excellent. I think that's a rather good segue to Rodney McMillian. Um, who doesn't always beat us on the head with his subtlety, does he? McMillian's <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, got this uh, diptych of shows um, in, in Queens and in and the Studio Museum in Harlem. Uh, and and the, um, he, I think, sees them uh, as also related, mm. uh, they become part of actually of a triptych of shows if you also include um, an exhibition he that had recently at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia, uh, which which overlapped with these presentations, uh, and which, by coincidence, we reviewed on the review panel Philadelphia, um, mm. Ken Johnson and others, um, uh, recently. Um, so, um, a sort of portrait of America today, in some sort of way, mm. um, a show of ostensibly landscape paintings at PS1, um, and a more kind of fulsome um, display of his his range of explorations. Um, in uh, sculpture, uh, the, the, the famous, some might say notorious uh, chairs that were his sort of breakthrough uh, statement um, of, uh, of the 90s. Um, and then um, um, video as well and, and um, um, 
sculptural work and uh, of, 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 of other form. Um, <laughs> Another animal Another has animal. joined the uh, discussion. <laughs> Great. Uh, Christopher, um, what's the temperature of, of uh, Rodney McMillian's work, do you think? Um, <laughs> what temperature? Do you temperature? Yeah. Well, um, is, it, is, it a, is it a hot, passionate portrait of, um, of the world? Is it a, a cool, uh, clever mm. reading of the world? Is it... Uh, I, I, I often wonder... Um, what what sort of mood is he really generating? Do you do you come out of his exhibitions? Uh, do you do you laugh at the work? Do you do you feel a sense of pity? What what's the, what sort of emotions does he arouse? Uh, well, I mean, I've, I've again, I should want to um, yeah, I've I've worked with Rodney at Bard. He was faculty while I, while I was a student, and we're only a year apart in age, and. I would not have known that we were a year apart in age based on our conversations and the way that he dealt with me. I think part of that is um, part of that's you know an asp you know an element of the pedagogical 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 relationships. Um, but he said something to me back. This was you know maybe ten or f ten twelve years ago. He said to me, um, we got into a discussion about some poems that I was writing, and somehow it led into his becoming an artist and he said you know I was a landscape painter hmm. um, he's like I, I really liked painting you know plain air landscape paintings like you know you like to sit out and paint and then he thought to himself um, you know I could do that but that's not enough and he wasn't he was wondering about how he might and I don't think he used this term but essentially instrumentalize his creativity his art towards having a greater, more enriched, social, socially engaged conversation. And, and you know, he went back and forth about it for a while with me, and I think he was very serious about being just a serious formalist painter. So when I heard landscape paintings, I thought, oh, they're going to show, <laughs> you know, some of these smaller, older paintings that he made that he's bringing out of his thing. Um, but that adds an, a fascinating dimension to what I view I viewed, knowing his, w I mean, I first knew his work from the, the overstuffed, decrepit mm -hmm. um, chair. And so then when, and then I learned more of his work uh, in, in, in at the ICA. And, um, and that so then when I heard a show called Landscape Painting and then saw it and saw it for what it is, um, I thought of this as some at some level as a kind of joke about landscape and painting. But mm. uh, the, the humor takes on a very different aspect, n knowing the backstory that, that Chris is now providing us with of his, uh, his uh, He's also Coro uh, youth. Something, I don't know if he still is, but um, during the few years that I you know, was in communication with him, he was a huge fan of Morandi which is kind of interesting. Right. Mm. And so when I was looking at this work, I kept thinking about that. Mm. Um, a lot, and just the mm. the somewhat plainness and the kind of anthropomorphizing of objects in a room, so to speak. Um, and I thought about that in relationship to the linoleum piece, which mm. was the hardest one for me in a way. Mm. Not super, well, it was all kind of strange, but I had a hard time dealing with cutting up a rug out of a pattern of someone's house and hanging it on the wall and pulling up 
that kind of linoleum, which I've seen many times as a kid, um, and placing it on the wall and the kind of memories that come along with, uh, you know, flooring placed on the wall. I thought of a couple of things. I thought of David Hammond's Rob yes. with the Chicken Bones. Um, and then I thought about, and I thought about this, which, go, which I'll talk about a bit more with Cornelia, was uh, Blinky Palermo's yellow, this yellow that he used that was commonly um, used in homes and kind of uh, rural buildings um, in Germany. And just the idea of taking really familiar everyday materials, recontextualizing them, and some people are going to look at it and have no idea, no real relationship with it, and other people are going to look at it and go, oh, wow, I know, I know what that is. That linoleum floor is like premier, uh, it's like a, a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, souvenir yes. of, of 70s mm. and 80s, particularly African-American urban poverty, mm. you know, right. where right. your landlord or your, your single mom or your, or, your, or your family, you know, your entire family unit, can't afford to do new flooring. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you peel up the old carpet or you peel, you, you know, the broken tiles are there and you tear, you tear them up and you go to the hardware store and you buy linoleum and your uncle comes in with his, you know, his uh, mm -hmm. exacto blade is like, you know, mm -hmm. and cuts it out for, you know, and then they push it down, you know, and the whole thing. And then you see it pu pulled up and brought on the wall. It's like, oh yeah. I, in some ways too, mm -hmm. and I'll pass it on, but and I had this problem with, with, with both of Rodney's shows is that I felt that on one note, there's this kind of romanticism which is filled with anger and humor and reminiscing that is sublimated and built into the objects. And, and in some ways, very much in a kind of Boisean fashion, but slightly different because Boise is more singular um, in his conversation. Um, you know, the import depends on so many other you know, experiences. Yes. And I thought, this is a little too fossil. Like, I want, I want like, a more complex uh, treatment of these materials. Um, and, and these issues. And say, well, and these, yeah, certainly. And again, it's the same thing, and I think Leslie is so much more an esthetician, which... Uh, which he mentioned, you know, the subtlety of it. There's a subtlety and there's a kind of elegance and a kind of choreography and a kind of weaving that Leslie's doing. Where, whereas Rodney's thing is, and it's very much his attitude, I think, and, and his personality, mm. there's these blunt juxtapositions. More theatrical, you know. which is ironic for somebody with a background in the plein air painting and, the, and uh, an infatuation with Morandi. Mm -hmm. So uh, do, do you think that, it, that the, the process of uh, the... the, the, the coming of age that Chris has, has uh, adumbrated for us of uh, an artist uh, in love with landscape painting who felt the need to engage more socially. Uh, do you feel that that comes across in a certain theatricality in his work? Certainly. Um, I, think, I think the objects themselves uh, do he gets so much mileage out of them. Mm -hmm. um, I felt, maybe this is taking it in a different direction, but I felt a bit frustrated at the Studio Museum by the contextualizing of the pieces. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. it, it in, it, 
they do so much. Those chairs do not need a wall label telling you that they have been <coughs> displaced from the street to the museum to depict mm. the terrible objection of the people who at some point had to discard the chair. I mean, they're, they're very potent, and, and I like the rawness. And I think that coding that in, in, a, in a discourse that's redundant mm -hmm. detracts from the power of these objects. Right. Um, uh, as far as the landscape paintings, I was very struck, again, by, context by, by, by what shifting the context of the work does. These seem so vibrant and cheerful, funny. I, 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 I went more with the sci-fi label that um, was used also in, in the contextualizing of these paintings, the landscape paintings. Um, I feel that there wasn't an effort to make them speak to a social reality that's outside the museum doors mm -hmm. with the paintings. And I found it peculiar because if you didn't know that, uh, the, the one thing connecting the body of work at the Studio Museum and, and the the, the work at uh, MoMA PS1 is, of course, the sheets, right? Right. That's mm -hmm. the one thing. Mm -hmm. You could potentially think that it's two different artists. Right. I, I do not see any thread but other by the than same, the... By the same token, within the studio museum, you could almost think it's a group show, could you not? Mm, yes, uh, only looking at the objects, but there was a consistent thread in, in the way in which the work was presented that was really not subtle. Mm. I mean, it just kept hammering the same mm. point. I did think that the um, video piece in which he uh, reenacts the Great Society speech yes. uh, was very, very interesting. And yes. in, in, in that sense, ventriloquy Ventriloquism, if, if, okay, this is, this is going off on a tangent. Okay. But I think he, he's very good at ventriloquizing um, and, and pointing at the explosion of meaning that can happen by simply having s a discourse <laughs> go through another body and be emitted in a, in a place where you're not expecting it. And, and I think that applies to the uh, chairs and the furniture as well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when someone else takes over, it kind of doesn't work. When someone else is, does, is, is, is in charge of the discourse. Ah, oh, right, right, yeah. So he, he should sense? be more Sorry. vigilant in policing those... Um, I think he should. Those, those bolshy curators up mm -hmm. in Harlem who are... I mean... Overly, overly explaining explaining away, mm -hmm. yes, the, the menace of interpretation, mm -hmm. yes. I found pretty much all the shows too text-heavy, uh, yeah. just as a general note. Um, you know, I thought just, just less words would be better for, for pretty much all of them. Um, but uh, I actually had a different experience. Um, I just fell in love with this artist for, through mm -hmm. these two shows. Um, mm -hmm. I just loved the directness of it. I loved the bluntness. Um, it felt so clear, the sense of urgency, I feel is quite rare these days, and I felt um, 
you know, honestly, I found the videos. I, I really enjoyed hearing what you said because I, I think it's better than what I thought because I thought these are so basic in a way. Mm -hmm. um, you feel like he could be criticized in a foundation-level course on video art, you know, saying, but yeah, but to push it, do more. Or, you know, that fantastic um, courthouse, which almost looks like a high school project, you know, this idea that get it justice is kind of not working out somehow. I mean, that's really what it reads as. It's mm -hmm. very straightforward. Mm -hmm. And yet... He's right, and it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, those videos made me do some research, and I went back and listened to the interviews, mm -hmm. thought, yeah, that's, that's really something. And then in the context of this uh, domestic space that I thought was so powerfully evoked, um, you know, I don't know if you need to know exactly what you were saying to get the full, I mean, mm. I've never seen a more poignant depiction of what felt like hard times just through those floors, and that idea of the political just seeping into this domestic space, and that very... For me, a very poignant sensibility of people having hard times within a certain context. I thought, I guess I'd just never seen anything quite like it before, and I loved it. And then I loved the, um, the landscape paintings even more. I mm -hmm. thought they were um, just incredibly engaged, incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he's just got that will of an artist that can just will something into being mm -hmm. greater than the sum of its parts. That's what I experienced it as. Um, and just in terms of a thread, I think it was interesting that black crusted paint that one saw so much at the studio right. museum, um, it started to read like almost like a static, like this artistic energy that you didn't know quite where to put it, but he was putting it on things and places, and then it kind of erupted into the landscape painting. So I felt this very blunt, direct artistic energy that I, I thought was really great. Mm -hmm. I find it hard looking at the landscape paintings not to think of David Hammonds, and Hammonds mm -hmm. has been um, a sort of ghost within uh, his uh, for, for, for some while. Mm -hmm. But w whereas in Hammonds you get the, the tarpaulin and a sense of maybe there's an, a painting behind that, a painting that's been mm -hmm. uh, frustrated or, or um, mm -hmm. um, interrupted. Um, um, in, in, in Hammonds, in, in um, in Macmillan, there seems to be a dialogue with Hammonds that's sort of saying, the bringing the lyricism to the other side of the tarpaulin, so to speak, uh, with that, that show landscape. Mm. Um, and then it seemed also that, that, that in, in that one gallery at PS1, um, room five, wherever it is, that, that um, the, the dense installation of, of those um, uh, deliberately jar, I mean, Obviously, he could have demanded more space or put in less work. So it's it's an intellectual decision to overload our senses with uh, one color uh, after another of uh, mm -hmm. uh, very strident supports, um, um, uh, but yet and yet not reading as one piece. Um, was it what was there some sort of there seemed to be a, a very specific deliberate energy or message even in the uh, the aesthetic overload of the landscape show. Um, but but now my entire reading of Macmillan has changed by Christopher's anecdotal um, contribution of his uh, his um, plan air beginnings. Mm. Right. Hmm. Well, I... Hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, one of the things, is, I mean, I, I probably said this earlier, but it's interesting to me with both of them, Hewitt and Macmillan, that they're, they're both um, uh, I don't want to say undermining, but I think McMillan probably more than um, uh, Hewitt. More than Hewitt, yes. But they're recalibrating our assessment of the so-called high fine arts. Um, that, I mean, and there's that's, in a way, that's the... Because there's a way to do this 
what Rodney's doing, and there's a way to do what Leslie is doing that doesn't have to deal with painting and sculpture. I mean, Adrian Piper would be a great example of someone, um, you know, who is like working out really the hands off of those materials, right? But these yeah. two are actively playing with and touching and re you know reanalyzing these things, juggling them conceptually, um, and hopefully, um, and I think I think there's something for both of them that there's a love for for those formal arts um, right um, and there's a want to enter into conversation with them and there's a, a, a push maybe to open them up to be more compassionate um, mm. in some way or another mm -hmm. or, or to have the power the, the ability <coughs> to convey the the social and racial experience that they that it's that they insist is, is there in their in their work or that they want to be in their work um, so that but but um, I in that, for instance, Hewitt would not be alone. That there's uh, a whole slew of artists who um, sort of crack open um, minimal art, not to produce what's formally post-minimal, but to produce um, within, but to use those structures uh, to give those signs new life as symbols, as it were. Oh, um, Jimmy Jones. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Or or a number of the artists in. Um, the Jewish Museum's reconstruction of the primary structures exhibition, mm -hmm. looking yeah. at mm -hmm. artists in, in um, particularly in third world and non-aligned countries, for whom uh, the the forms of minimal uh, and reductive art were um, ciphers for uh, work of, of conceptually or thematically very different nature. Yeah, good. Well, I think it's a nice point at which to bring in our audience, um, and we can discuss. Um, both these shows and, and the issues that they they bring up. We have a, Meredith, we have a roving mic. Yes. Fantastic. And um, please do wait for the mic to, to reach you because besides wanting to hear your every word, we are uh, also recording this evening's proceedings for later podcast at artcritical.com and elsewhere. Um, by the way, the May panel uh, with Leanne Norman and Barry Schwabsky and... Um, um, uh, Joan. Joan Waltermatt is now um, available at Art Critical. So, um, yeah, either show, Hewitt or Macmillan, uh, or both, um, but not neither. So, uh, <laughs> wait, do wait for the mic if you would. Yes. So, I, I'd like to know from the panel um, how much the space influences this work. Uh, Leslie's work in that rough space and then Rodney's work in this museum and if you were, I'm talking about the sculpture, um, uh, if you were to reverse those, what would your opinion of the work be? Is the, is the space influencing the work in a way positive, negative, and I'm curious about what your points of view are. Yeah. Um, I feel perhaps we did address Hewitt in specific relation to the space, mm -hmm. um, because although it's, you, you described it as rough, it's in fact a very smoothed down rough, isn't it, Sculpture Centre? I mean, it's a, a pretty nice space for sculpture, pretty perfect space for sculpture, actually. Um, and then PS1 is, um, keeps its roughness, but it's a uh, studio museum, obviously, very um, neat. Sort of somewhat 70s, 80s looking building, but I don't know. Does anybody feel that the, that um, 
if any, if anything, I mean, it's a very short comment, but uh, I have to say I was originally taken aback with the Hewitt exhibition. It just looked too slick to me <coughs> um, at mm. first, and it took me a while to kind of get past. It looked a little art schooly, to be honest. Like, okay, I'm supposed to think about this photograph placed very gently here, and then around the corner, and there's a little iPad inserted in the wall, and that's silly. I mean, none of that. It's it's not. That's external to the core, I think, of mm. what she's getting at. So I just shuffed that all aside. But just you know, in response to your question, I was a little concerned with a kind of slickness. It looked. It. I thought it felt like there was a kind of heavy curatorial hand in the in the work originally. But as I say, it's you know, it was worth getting past that. Absolutely. It felt to me that um, Hewitt probably had more of a commanding hand um, in the decisions of what to place where, mm. um, mm. maybe, than uh, Macmillan. But on the other hand, I, I doubt that any curator at PS1 or the Studio Museum in Harlem would get in the way, the way of uh, the ego of an artist like, like Rodney Macmillan. Mm. So um, I, I think that probably both artists would take full authorship for how they're installed, but not necessarily how they're intellectually packaged, as Monica has justifiably. True. <laughs> yes. I mean, there, there was something about the space in which the landscape paintings were, were shown, uh, where, where you can have a full view of all of them together. Right. That did contribute to the vibrancy mm. of the mm -hmm. display, mm -hmm. Yes. in my opinion. If, if they had not had that display, they probably wouldn't have been so dynamic and they wouldn't have activated the space. It just felt light and airy and, and, and joyous, celebratory. Mm -hmm. And I really do think that it's, it's because of the, I mean, but the paintings he, do that, but the he space he helped. Could have, he could have been given the whole ground floor with just the paintings mm -hmm. in that one room because mm -hmm. they were all cheek by jowl. But yeah. then we'd have looked at them in, um, with a sort of formal reverence that mm -hmm. we bring to abstract expressionist painting, mm -hmm. and then conceptually it would have had a whole different meaning, wouldn't True. it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah they uh, were very environmental in a way. Right. Yes. Hello. Um, Hello. Christina, um, could you just explain your um, objections to Rodney's videos? I did not see the one at, in Harlem, but I thought the one at PS1 was terrific. Oh, I didn't mean, uh, forgive me if I, if I wasn't clear. Um, it wasn't an objection so much as um, uh, a sense that they were, you know, incredibly, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I mean, there's a real straightforwardness to them. And I think, um, if anything, I was, I was sort of saying that I'm aware that some people might want a more complex kind of handling or, you know, to push the idea a little bit further. I mean, in a sense, it's a very straightforward transition he's making. He's putting the words in the mouth of these dummies that then tell you what the words are. I mean, it's a, it's a one translation, the, the one that I'm thinking of. I like the videos. I like the show very, very much. So perhaps I wasn't clear. I didn't really, I didn't object to them. I was just responding to the fact that there's a, an, I guess what I liked about him is that it's almost like he's not afraid of being too simple. I, th I mean, I think some people could say there, he's not pushing the idea enough, but I like the straightforwardness. Does that answer the question or maybe not? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, address the idea of uh, the total work of art in contemporary in, in both of these examples, how they're using multiple disciplines, and if the poetics has changed from this, from the modernist take on that. Right, the Gesamtkunstwerk in hmm. both Hewitt and uh, um, hmm. Macmillan. 
Um, so that's, I mean, that's a very interesting question, but it, it's one that, um, a very, one, very interesting point, but it's, it, it begs a question, I think, because um, one can see using a variety of mediums as generating a total work of art, or you can see the opposite, that um, uh, flitting from one medium to the other is, is uh, avoiding the centrality of a work mm -hmm. of art. So it, it, it's a, I think your question has a kind of hmm. value judgment in it. Um, I mean, we, we may or may not come to a conclusion of a, a total work of art, or even the, the intention of a total work of art, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. it seemed to me that Hewitt, uh, well, to my mind, and I think the consensus on the panel is that um, Hewitt's exhibition had um, more of a, an ambition for totality. Is that mm. fair? Mm. Yeah, I feel mm. like, the, the, I mean, I, again, I didn't mm. see it, but just from the images mm. and just kind of talking mm. about it, I mean, it seems, it seems like sh her work is much more fluid and the, you know, these are, you know, each discrete object or discrete moment is a portal into a, a, a larger, very vast conceptual terrain, and these are just points of entry into <laughs> that the discourse that she's that she's having, and I think the same is true for Rodney. But in both shows, I have to say, but I didn't get a chance to say this, but mm -hmm. I was I was really I didn't like the way they were installed. Like I I thought um, the Studio Museum exhibition, I just thought it could have been richer and more densely packed and. Mm -hmm. I didn't quite, you know, there was a couple of moments where I thought, wow, what if, you know, one of these dilapidated chairs was actually on this rug that was on the floor? Mm. I didn't understand why it was on the wall. I mean, I kind of understand. I can, I can make associations with painting and, you know, a conversation with that and, you know, and, uh, you know, but in some ways I wish that everything was much more packed mm -hmm. and, um, and then the other thing too, and, the, and I don't know if this is curatorial hand or if this is Rodney's doing or whatever, but um, I really disliked the discreteness of the objects, like how they tried to, to showcase each sculpture as a you know singular, they create a space around the space. And that space doesn't really do that very well. And I've seen probably a dozen shows there. And I mean, by people that I really admire, like, you know, Barbara Chase Rebo, I remember seeing that show and thinking the same thing, like something about the way that people treat that space mm -hmm. doesn't do justice to the artwork. Um, I must say his work yeah. of a very similar, na work of a very similar nature um, installed um, at the ICA in Philadelphia was a very different aesthetic experience. Mm -hmm. It was, the space was beautifully handled mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you had, both more relationship between objects and, ironically, more space in which to savor the individuality mm. of each object. Mm. Yeah. And so that room, for me, is like, I think from a curatorial standpoint and an artistic standpoint, if you're dealing with a room that has that, as such close quarters, um, with objects that are so fraught and, and weighted and, quite frankly, large, mm. um, then you want, I would overpack the room so that the effect of the ex of the overall experience is 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 immersive you know um, and I think that that level of immersion um, that I want to feel with something like that that you know just wasn't wasn't it was it was compromised and not compromised um, 
with good reason. I don't think. I think mm. it was. Uh, I think it was provisional, not not in the not, not in the Rubinsteinian uh, sense of the yes. word, but in the general sense of the word. I think that 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 exhibition was provisional, and I also felt the same way about the the uh, landscape paintings. You know, I felt like, oh, this is like a this provisional gesture. Like this is not like super. Those paintings could do just as well in a large. They could do just as well at Bard CCS in the large, in the big large space there. They would be just as beautiful and interesting and weird. And you'd have more space to walk. You know, like the speed at which you digest those images is. It would have been comparable in a bigger space because you're 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 um, you're walking. You're pacing yourself through the show. Would then, but, 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 but the problems are then the opposite. Then, you're, you, I think it's, if I'm reading it correctly, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, at the Studio Museum, the complaint is it wasn't theatrically dense enough, and at um, PS1, it was maybe too theatrically dense. Well, I, I just felt like it was arbitrary at PS1, oh, right. mm -hmm. in, a, right. in a nutshell. And this, and these are not like you know, you know. I think the work is strong. I'm just saying, you know, if if I'm starting to look at finer points on ideas and where I would be critical, you know, it just, I didn't, it didn't make, I didn't start looking at the paintings next to each other and finding some kind of tension or some right. kind of resonance between the objects that, there it was no electricity in that room, in that room right. for me. Mm -hmm. Now, only in one, what, from one point of view, which I think Monica brought up, is if you're standing, once you're in the room mm -hmm. and you're against, and you come out from around the large wall that had the red painting on it, and you get to see the room in toto, like in the room, mm -hmm. there is something mildly titillating about that. Mm -hmm. But the way you come in that room mm -hmm. and how you get through the objects is, I think it compromised the experience mm -hmm. of the individual works. And mm -hmm. unless you really spend a lot of time there, um, you know, yeah, I, I just came away again, just kind of going like, this is not, this for some reason, this is not working. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't okay. spoken about the video Yeah, really quickly. In that room, the the sheet yes, performance. That's right. Behind the wall and the yes. landscape painting. There is right. He's, he's he's engaging with the sheets, and I I feel like that's so central to what he's trying to do. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, if 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 the body is the center of his art practice, why is it cut off in a separate room? That performance with the sheet, which apparently is something that he engages in often before making the landscape paintings. Right. Oh. They go hand in hand, and here they were severed. But we want to mm -hmm. move on. We do, and we also yes. want to hear what David Humphrey yes. wants to contribute. His I had a question and maybe a, a thought um, about Better. the Leslie Hewitt white sculptures. And it seemed like um, you wanted to talk about them as kind of representations of a type of art, like minimalist art, and that maybe uh, she's doing some kind of riffing on the history of art. But that doesn't really seem to ri live up to, David, what you... Um, wanted to say was that they were symbols, but what are they symbols of? And I, and I feel like, yes, it's, it's charged. The whiteness, you could say that maybe their, blank, their very blankness is infused with a kind of um, uh, you know, socio-cultural association with, with whiteness and white people, but that also maybe the whiteness of the blank, the, the, like, uh, the photographic paper, that these things kind of refer to their original flatness, they've been kind of folded, maybe compromised as, as a, a deep blank, but that that would maybe be to, uh, to work into the direction of how to integrate the thing 
symbolically, which I, I feel like you guys kind of didn't, didn't want to touch. Didn't want to interpret the symbol. The symbol, yeah, what's right. it a symbol of? Because the, the, um, the white structures of the sculpture actually form partial cubes or sides of a cube. So it's in this post-industrial space, but it then becomes this quite hermetic, rather than the sculpture being in a white cube, the sculpture sort of is a white cube. And so then, so it's the, the purism, uh, I think, is, is, is very strong. And then it's also that th the way al almost all the works have the folded corner, mm -hmm. which, which makes sense of your notion of paper. Mm -hmm. But then, it, then it's a form to fill out, isn't it? Or then it's, um, uh, then it's, it's a structure within which to put thoughts. So and, th and then maybe whiteness itself, uh, it's, it's kind of... Um, uh, fulfillment of the notion of a blank is a kind of privilege that's mm -hmm. underwritten by and maybe inscribed by this particular institution. And I think the, mm -hmm. the walls, those white walls that, um, that mark off the kind of quarantine the video seem like cousins to the sculpture. Right, mm. right. I mean, we might be making too much of the whiteness. I mean, they would be just yeah. as effective if they were grey or... or well, I don't think so. I, no. I mean, I didn't they're very pretty. I'll they're very nice. To be blunt, I didn't... Re I'm very interested in what you're saying. I, I really didn't read them symbolically. And I know that that's... I know the potential's there, but I, I just have to go with what the exhibition made me feel. And I, I didn't... Mm. I don't think there's... I don't know. I don't think it's such a, a straightforward relationship. You know, this means this. I, I think, for me, they were all about sparking a certain type of experience. Um... But they're certainly very luxurious objects because, look, they're not um, classic minimal or arte povera art gives us kind of bricks, neon strips, uh, even, the even the precisionism of Judd has a kind of industrial rigor to them. These, these things are too much, too, too much origami to be that. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they're also not baroque and complex enough to be modernist sculpture, Tony Caro or, or even Mark de Souvre or somebody. So that's why it seems to me they have a, they are, even if they're not symbols, they're signs. They, 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 they can operate as, as well, signs. They're, they're elusive. I mean, they're elusive in many directions. Well, they're towards, elusive, towards but they also have a feeling of a, a bit like logos. They could, hmm. they could be logos of something. Didn't they, I mean, when you saw in the film the way the characters were standing, I saw that as a real echo. We've got to move on, but I just, yes. uh, for me, I, they were almost like a key to reading the rest of the show in the sense mm -hmm. that I, you know, the idea of internal, external, blah, blah, I sort of said that already, but I think that um, I'm sure one could find correspondences between the sculptures and the way the filming was done for the right. films. Well, thank you very much for that, and thank you for all the comments, and thank you for also for bringing up the, the video that we neglected um, at PS1, Monica. So let's see, let's the PowerPoint presentation take us back to Manhattan, a uh, new museum, and uh, Met Roof, and um, Madison Square Park. And a good moment, actually, to thank Claire Hake in Philadelphia for preparing the PowerPoint presentations and for my uh, associate, um, Anna Shaquillo, for helping in the um, editing and gathering of images. Um, cool. So, <laughs> Makuga at the New Museum. Um, well, 
no shortage of references um, <laughs> and uh, here, um, an artist who's uh, sometimes been uh, called almost a kind of cultural anthropologist as much as uh, an artist, although that's something uh, she, she rejects um, in, in her self-definition. Um, Christine, uh, Monica, Monica, mm -hmm. what do you make of Goshka? Is there a big gosh when you see gosh? <laughs> uh, certainly, the, ta the tapestries yes. do inspire some, oh my god, mm -hmm. these are exquisite. They're, they're really lovely objects um, that are so intricate in terms of the constellations of mm. uh, people and institutions with diverse affiliations that they weave together. Mm -hmm. They leave one thing out, in my opinion. Yeah. Which is their own making. Right. The, the actual fabrication you of... You want to see of the back the of the tapestry. I, I want to see the back of the tapestry. I want to see... Like the back of the who Cornelia Parker mm. barn. Right, mm. exactly. Yes, who made them? Mm. Who's, who, uh, how, who's paying for the production of these pieces? How are they being... Sh they're, they're being made in Italy, I believe, right? The weavers are in, uh, are in Italy, if I'm not mistaken. Um, that side of the equation is completely left out, mm. um, which, which I found a bit problematic. I also found problematic um, the way in which this exhibition in particular failed to reckon with the aspect of her practice, which involves site specificity and doing research mm. with the institution that's actually housing the work. Mm. So there's all these works dealing with the, again, constellations of people and affiliations and institutions and corporations, et cetera, that made the work for Chicago, the mm. Whitechapel, uh, document and Afghanistan, but there's no work addressing this exhibition in New York City. Right. And one of the pieces, in fact, presents a really good opportunity, the one, um, what is it called? Uh, the Nature of the Beast. Yes. Which was presented at the Whitechapel because it turns out it was a Bloomberg commission. Right. So that, for instance, could have presented a really good opportunity. And that's a piece that's in fact a photograph of um, some bureaucrat in front of the mm -hmm. Guernica mm -hmm. tapestry. Yes. Right. Not, it's not the Guernica painting, but the mm -hmm. there's a tapestry version of it at the UN. Mm -hmm. And it's rather galling. It's often you know, um, diplomats ju about to justify a new bombing mm -hmm. raid. Um, it's what's the what better backdrop than Guernica? Um, yeah. Which uh, Anganika had been exhibited at one point on its global tour after uh, its initial showing at the Paris World's mm -hmm. Fair. It went to the Whitechapel Gallery mm -hmm. in the 1930s. Um, and so that's part of the fabric of, uh, no pun intended, of this commission. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, actually, for, for a, such a site-specific artist, mm -hmm. the new museum is basically sort of offering a little bit of a retrospective. It's not right. a site. It's, it's they, they were site-specific here, there, and everywhere, and they're, they're pulled together now for, um, in fact, a couple of the slides in the presentation, uh, by necessity, were um, photographed in other institutions, which mm. uh, uh, is never desirable, but, um, uh, but for our perspective. Mm -hmm. but, but yeah, um, anybody else troubled, as Monica is, by not getting enough um, either backstory or folding into the work itself the process of, of its being a tapestry? Or is that possibly, Monica, dare one say, uh, a critical 
demand uh, that's not the intention of the artist. Mm -hmm. um. I'm always a little wary when, I mean, curatorially, what you suggest would be very interesting, but you've already complained about too much curatorial <laughs> intervention. <laughs> um, but critically, I'm always, you know, uh -huh. yeah. that's why I was a little nervous with, with some of Christopher's comments of, you know, these should have been closer together, these should have been further apart. Hmm. That would have been, that would be us making a new meaning out of the work somehow. Um. But yet it's, do doesn't it seem, I'm sorry, you yeah. were going to say. Um, uh, but part of the goal of these projects is to um, unearth the, the, the history of the institution. Right. Right? So that it informs the viewing experience. Mm -hmm. And so it does seem a bit contradictory to not do it at the new museum. Right. In a retrospective exhibition. I'm yeah, I'm super interested in what you're saying there. Um, it didn't occur to me the idea that, yeah, but how is the tapestry made? But it actually leads to, I didn't get as far as you, but it does lead to a kind of disconnect that I felt in terms of the subject matter and the actual art pieces themselves. There's something not, for me, not quite right. I mean, in terms of my, my biggest feeling about the show was that it had all the trappings of, not, that's, a, that's too harsh a word, it had all the ingredients of what should be very good potent contemporary art and all of it. I mean, there's so much going on in these works. Mm -hmm. And yet something for me was a little bit missing. And I'm wondering when you said, I would have liked to have seen the tapestry made, whether there's some disconnect between this, um, this kind of incredible random generation of imagery, not to say she doesn't research the heck out of everything, mm -hmm. but it's, you know, there's an incredible reliance on random meaning being generated, which flirts incredibly with meaninglessness, mm. to like total meaninglessness. Mm. I mean, these mm. could all just collapse in a way, but they do not because they're held up by this very, um, you know, historically weighty uh, medium, which is the, these incredible tapestries. So it's almost like she's making time capsules, but time capsules of what? You mm -hmm. know, there's something not... They, they just didn't quite all add up to me. You know, you, talk, you, uh, you mentioned Constellation, which I think I felt I was kept on looking for the Constellation to materialize into an image, which is, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I just kept on seeing the dots rather mm -hmm. than the, mm -hmm. the image. Mm -hmm. Why tapestry, Christopher? Why do you think she wants these images as tapestries? I don't know. Um. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I walked in and I literally almost walked out. Oh. <laughs> like really? I, I, I walked in, and I was like, "This is bullshit. I'm leaving." And, oh, wow. and I and then I was like, "Okay, wait a minute. Don't don't say that. Just kind of you know pace yourself. This is just not your thing. Just like walk through and deal with it." And I thought the tapestries. Once at first, I didn't know they were tapestries. I just kind of was in this zone. I was like, "Oh, they're just like big posters or whatever." And then I realized, "Oh, I got closer to them. It's like, oh, they, they are they are they're rugs or whatever." And um, why can't we walk on them? Yes. Well, you know. And then I, I, I mean, I sort of started to dig them, but I think I think I'm following your point more that um, what I really got a little bit irritated. Well, I should, I should not. That sounds like that doesn't sound right. No, we need what to. I, what I what I got yeah. what I was yeah. irritated by was again this kind of um, you know just a lack of. I think there's a like a lack of investment or a lack of of real interest mm -hmm. like um in the in the in the content that she's mm -hmm. kind of pulling together 
And it's almost as if, well, I can just grab a little Duchamp here and put a little Picasso there and put, you know, a little, you know, whoever, a Tea Party member here. And, you know, yeah. and it all kind of comes together because, mm. you know, it's, you know, history is, you know, endless. There is, you know, time. There's, we're, we're in, the, in the era of timelessness. Mm. And I'm like, yeah, but then like, you know, so, I mean, like, you know, everyone participating in, you know, contemporary society and dealing with the web and just the, the glut of information that we all have to process, I want her to articulate something mm -hmm. that's very specific to her feeling around this. Mm -hmm. I don't care that she was in Document and Kabul. It was in Kabul and, you know, in Kasov. That doesn't, I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I'm like, what, is, what, what about that? What more about Hostile, that? big deal. What, it's, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, that's, in a way, that's what it came off as is kind of like, you know, someone who has, who has a career, mm. has resources, mm. you know, needs to come up with something serious, you know, and it looks serious and it's beautiful enough and, you know, enough people will be dazzled by it and enough people will be um, uh, seduced by the inco incoherence yes, that the exactly. it will, it will yes. come off as mm. complex art. Yeah. You know? Right. Mm. There, there is that slight danger there. I think, Monica, maybe you were asking, uh, you were sort of wanting uh, um, her, Goshka, to, to deliver something. Maybe, maybe um, Boetti and Alighieri yeah. have um, kind of taken an ownership of tapestry mm -hmm. in, in a way that um, uh, his work made it absolutely instrumental that um, the women out there in Afghanistan mm -hmm. had made this, mm -hmm. or Pakistan or whatever, had made this um, rug. And that's folded into the meaning of the work, rather like, say, Anthony Gormley when he gets um, all the villagers in Mexico uh, to make these little figurines or something, mm -hmm. that their labor, their traditions are sort of folded into the meaning of the work. Um, um, even you could say with, uh, when Jeff Koons gets uh, Meisen porcelain workers to make uh, mm. um, uh, bubbles and Michael Jackson image, um, the, all, all, the, all the meaning of that technology is there. But here it's just anonymous. It's a sort of um, blasé, oh yeah, we'll do it as a tapestry. Right. Um, maybe some of the... I kind of liked the, uh, the Colin Powell sculpture as a souvenir. Yeah. And I think it would be effective if it was like this big, <laughs> you know. But you have a little shop. Yeah, yes. you know, like a little, ch little tchotchke, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just don't know what language she's speaking. I mean, yeah. because in a way, I think there is, there is a contradiction. By it seems very random, but I don't think it's, a, is, it's as random as it comes across to the reader. And there is mm. a problem of legibility. Can we read those references? Mm. So mm. the Tea Party, I was listening to an interview um, between her and the curator at the Walker, and it's all a sequence of um, coincidences and serendipities that then get rationalized and mm. put together into this lo actually seemingly logical thing. So it mm -hmm. turns out that when she was at the Walker, she couldn't return to London where she is based yes. because of the volcano um, in Iceland. And so she needed to stay longer. And because she was there longer, she happened to witness um, a, a protest on the part of the Tea Party members on tax day because they didn't want to yeah. pay taxes and they were protesting on tax day. So that's why you have a Tea Party member there in Duchamp, of course, he's at his opening at the Walker, etc. So it appears <laughs> random, but the yeah. story is very hard to remember because I don't care. <laughs> and 
Yeah. I think you're right. She does it. She's not personally invested in what she's doing. I, it, it seems like the procedure is she comes to a place, uh, will go into the archive, pretend like she's invested, yeah. only to manufacture this thing, and as soon mm. as it's done, great. Yeah. Everyone, like she's giving back to the people who sh yeah. made it possible, and then she's on to the next thing. But there is no person, and, and because of the thoroughness of her investment in that component of the making of the work, you would think that there would be some social, social engagement, some, mm. uh, some interest in, in the labor force that went into it, et cetera, but it, it just doesn't, it's more about just money, art, and politics, but not about labor. Perhaps right. that w that's, what missing, that's, or, that's or what's missing in the equation. Or the politics of money and art. I mean, you know, the politics of, mo yeah, money in art, you know. I mean, that's, that's you know, right. wielding the, the mechanism of the art world and produce something that right. has some validity and kind of yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. stands in for, for a certain mm -hmm. amount of seriousness, which... I think for me, too, I really agree with what you're saying. I think f it also, um, it raises, uh, you know, there's a risk to, to research-based art, which mm -hmm. is so popular. I mean, in all the art yeah. schools, yeah. this idea of going to a site, researching it, and then, and it's almost as though if you don't have that kind of a story behind something, mm -hmm. it, it's problematic. It's become very, very, and there's a risk, I mean, in the sense that it's, um, the artistic impulse is totally externalized. You know, yeah. it's, it's you're going into archives, you're going into a library. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, mm -hmm. but the instinct to internalize something and you know create from a more direct perspective is perhaps diluted, and I think mm -hmm. her work is tremendously diluted from a, mm -hmm. an instinct point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, she couldn't stand in greater contrast to uh, Hewitt's mining of an archive. Because, mm, um, right. I mean, that's, that's an interesting uh, commonality between two of the shows we're looking at here, but they, they're chalk and cheese as far as finding the real richness and resonance in a material. Instead, it's a kind of sort of smarmy um, uh, um, <laughs> cleverness, isn't there? About uh, um, it's as if a team of researchers have gone out and found random information, and th this mastermind has mm -hmm. put them all together in a way that, um, in it, 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 it seems clever mm. in, in in the way it's all woven together. But it's mm -hmm. in fact this kind of slick meaninglessness of mm -hmm. it's a bit like a tapestry, you could say. Yeah. That it's um, uh, someone else's design uh, that's then uh, super skillfully made into something luxurious mm -hmm. but flat. Mm -hmm. And so there I think, I think there I think we've found the connection between the, the conceptual, uh, her conceptualism and her choice of medium. I mean, it, tapestry could put us into the, the, the sensation of being in a sort of baronial, um, uh, in, a, in a kind of state room in a castle or something or a mm -hmm. palace mm -hmm. but they don't once you, you have to be told or you have to notice that they're tapestries for that richness uh, that association of richness to come across mm -hmm. they actually just look like big they could have been big photographs if one s mm -hmm. if one saw photographs of the tapestries one wouldn't necessarily know they're tapestries absolutely um so uh, but but one doesn't really get any kind of warmth or specialness or luxury mm -hmm. from their being tapestry. Mm. Can we talk about the theatricality yes. of the work as well and, and the, the, the stage set, that other piece mm. that is not a tapestry. Oh, right. right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. It's, the it's like a, mm. right, the Chicago piece. What is it called? A prepar preparatory notes for um, whatever, a yeah. comedy or something. Did anyone see 
Any videos of it? So at the museum, there is a performance apparently um, happening every Thursday and Saturday. Um, I saw a clip of it. Yes. And it actually was, it had everything that the work lacks. Oh. It oh. had humor yeah. and a spark oh. and it was dynamic right. and it was uh, uh, just really wild. It, it, and, and there was, there was music, uh, really wonderful uh, dancers. Mm. The performers were very lively. And uh, it seemed very Dada-esque in a way. Um, does it have I anything? I she, she does reference in one of the works the, the people carrying the big letter. Uh -huh. um, those postal workers. Um, Tadej Kantor, who's mm -hmm. I mean, although she's London-based and educated, yes. Um, She's she's Polish and Cantor is 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 the the mm -hmm. eminence grise of of Polish avant-garde gestures and mm -hmm. um, um, so I'm wondering if this um, because I actually thought that 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 the best bits in the show were the Karl Marx and that piece that we see when we come in mm -hmm. um, but um, again, packed with um, jokey references. Uh, uh, I, one could rattle some off, but um, uh, Dasha, whatever, uh, uh, the, the Russian heiress on on the oh on yes, the, uh, on the, 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 the chair, right? Um, and uh, uh, Angela Merkel and with yes. a cell phone, and the guy in the uh, towel was it looked like um, Liam Gillick, but it couldn't have been really. Ah. Do you know? Uh, yes, I don't. Chest? He looked very familiar, but he I don't think familiar. it was him. I no. don't think it was Liam Gillick. Somebody, someone else. Hmm. Yes. Very insidery, all those references. Very uh, insidery, yes. Yeah. But um, it had a kind of uh, the cutout quality. It seemed it seemed theatrically fun. Mm -hmm. But actually, I am now becoming more and more mm, feeling a bit like uh, one of our panelists who didn't make one of the shows because I'm realizing I did make the show, but I didn't really see the show because I didn't see there was yeah. a film that one could have seen once a week. I was very worried. I was lucky to arrive right. there when the women in their uh, cat mm -hmm. suits painted to look mm -hmm. like they're naked standing in front, sitting in front of the Karl Marx in Highgate Cemetery and reading various books. Um, I managed to see that, but I'm getting a feeling that maybe this ex uh, explains the, the sensation of emptiness that mm -hmm. one has in the show, mm. in that, mm -hmm. in fact, one is not seeing the show, and it is empty. Right. Mm. Perhaps, uh, actually, for 95% of the time, the show is uh, the unanimated props of the show at its best, right. which you um, have to be lucky to be there on a Wednesday morning or a Thursday evening or whatever <laughs> to, to experience. Is that is that what's I mean going on? I think I think some of the conversation is still valid in terms of the objects that are in the space, the the, yeah. the tapestries, which do make up the, the bulk of the exhibition. But I was worried about that too. I really tried to find images of the performance aspect of it because, um, you know, as I was saying, the, the meaninglessness aspect of it, when you think of different traditions that really embrace the potential of meaninglessness, whether it be you know Dada or certain types of absurdist theater, that seems way more fitting to me. And perhaps if you you know if she were to really just follow it through to the conclusion, yeah. that it might be more energized and more. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I think the show's got some time to run, so hopefully, uh, despite the lack of enthusiasm for the tapestries <laughs> on the panel, hopefully the fact that we all regret not having yet seen the performative mm -hmm. element within this exhibition will inspire both <laughs> us and the audience to give another crack and go back to the new museum. So, um, a lovely m summer moment where we have two um, certainly magnificently scaled um, 
temporary public commissions on Madison Square Park and on the roof of the Met from Martin Perrier and Cornelia Parker. Um, having thought I could just jam them together, I realized, in <laughs> fact, that each of them is a highly complex work that could command a, a whole evening of criticism. Mm -hmm. But let's nonetheless <laughs> Nobody wants that. <laughs> not stay here till midnight. And uh, let's, let's, let's just free associate um, Bling and Psycho. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thoughts, feelings, one, the other. Um, Christina? Uh, I love Martin Purrier as, as an artist. Um, really enjoyed the piece. Um, felt maybe the scale posed some challenges and that I don't think it's his strongest work. So, you know, it's mm. hard to make a sculpture that big. I'm not sure why he didn't have a little more dynamism, why it was flat. But on the whole, I mean, just a wonderful presence. Um, you know, speaking about city life, sort of shimmering and striving, but not quite being solid, both aggressive and inviting. I mean, I think it was a lovely... And I think it worked very well as public art when you think of truly public art that really needs to speak not just to museum goers, but to mm -hmm. people. I right. think all those specific concerns very well addressed there. Uh, Cornelia Parker, um, really interesting piece, obviously. Uh, very effective, that uncanny thing that can happen when a dream image is, is built concretely. I think it has that uncanny presence. The more I thought of it, um, I'll go out on a limb here. I found it a bit ungenerous, I think, in terms of its public quality, I don't think she took into account how it feels to be on the top of the mat. And I think, and uh, this, this is where I'm a bit worried about what I'm going to say, but I think as a Canadian, I'm a little sensitive to, because I grew up with some of it, it, it felt anti-American to me. You know, she's really delving into American icons and coming up with something very powerful. But, uh, and I know she's a sophisticated artist, but a very simple reading would be, you know, there's a kind of depravity at the heart of this, this American vision, both bucolic and urban, you know, bringing the, the rural into the, the urban setting, very powerfully done. And, you know, maybe that's a legit thing to do, but I found it, I found it a little ungenerous. Also, the fact that it has, it's so much about nascent consciousness and, and you know, the idea of the transitional mm. object, someone just mm. coming to understand something, and yet it has no appeal it's a very cerebral kind of object. It doesn't have immediate appeal, I, d I felt, to... Well, frankly, I mean, there's so many children running around, but what are they going to do with this haunted house, you know? So I found mm -hmm. it to be not, not considerate about the public at large, even though, I mean, I, I, why, you could write an essay about how successful it is at yeah. the things it does do, but ultimately I found it ungenerous. Ungenerous. Okay. Mm. Um, Christopher? Um, I'm not sure. When I first saw it, I mean, I don't know how to talk about it. it was again it's one of we talked about this earlier it was over explained um so it's kind of like okay well <laughs> yeah there's not much to, to to add to it and it's i think it's very pat artwork in many ways um you know it's uh, well you know i'll read some of my notes they're they're i mean they're really basic i mean i didn't have much to say i was like uh Sunny day again. House looks surreal, set against open sky from northeast, looking toward the west. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, um, the angularity of the structure rhyme with with the uh, with uh, the trellis with vines on it that functions as the entryway to the deck space. So that was like architecturally some of the thing that, that one of the things I noticed was that the the sh the shape of yeah the angularity of the house kind of rhymes with the there's two trellis. Um, the one that the long 
kind of entryway and then the side space where the concession stand and there was like this kind of cottage feel that really kind of made the house now look ominous uh, um, mm. ominous it made it look like kind of a big dollhouse in a way mm. um so that you know that was kind of intriguing. and there were tons of children playing the day that i was there and tourists um you know i thought it was cute and uh, i wish you would have finished it uh, <laughs> uh, like oh but then we'd lose a whole dimension we'd lose the wizard of oz meets Right, so I, I mean, mm-hmm. I got that the whole like I mean, I got that little part, that little trick. But I was like, oh, you know, why not just go ahead and finish it and then make it this like kind of totally illusory kind of magical moment for everyone, right. um, you know, instead of you know, looking look, look at you know our fake world. Kind of. I mean, I got the the critique, the American <laughs> critique thing, and that I didn't didn't bother me Puria, so much. Though. But Puria, not Puria, I thought was just gorgeous. Like I was like. I was like, this is one of the best things I've ever, I, I love it. You know, I love, I mean, I have to say I am a ridiculous fan of him. Um, so I, I'm not super critical of him. Yeah. Um, I came across, uh, I wrote my notes down, I forget, it was the street. I came across, uh, was it 24th Street? I think it was. I like, I walked over from the 6th train on 24th Street and just walked across. So I got about halfway down 24th just before you get to where was it Broadway and 5th meet right there. And I, saw, and I just saw this thing and it reminded me like of a big animal in like a zoo or something mm-hmm. like on a zoo campus. And I got all excited like I was going to the zoo, you know. <laughs> and, um, and then uh, the the title I liked a lot made a lot of sense you know the thing that's interesting for me with Purrier and I think it it goes it's one of the things I think as a general it's my personal issue is that he understands the importance of the thing that I did that was interesting I have to say this I went from Purrier to the Met and then I walked you had to walk through the uh, Greek antiquities and right. whatever and I saw this relationship between what Purrier was doing and what these... Oh, very much so. The Assyrian yeah. feeling mm. is he, very strong. He is actually mm. paying attention to, mm-hmm. like, mm. art. Like, he's actually yes. paying attention to it. Mm. It's not like, oh, i got to figure out what I'm going to do right now. Mm. It's like, I know how to make something. I have a past. I have a, a personal mm. investment in what I'm doing. It's, um, it's spiritual. It's physical. Mm. It's... Uh, it, it is resolutely an extension of his speech in the world. Yes. And I think that, that a lot of artists don't have that. They don't have that. They don't know how to do that. Um, and you, it's not something I think you can really train people to do. I think you can train people to draw well and make things well and like that. But to be really invested in extending a language in that way is very, very rare. And the other thing that was interesting to me, and then this is not so interesting, it's also kind of praise, mm-hmm. is that you know when you do a public commission, it's kind of like, you know, here's do something for us. We need you yes. to do something. So it's very calculated. It's not quite. It's not always coming from. It's likely not coming from inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And still, it felt there felt like it was. Lyri- it felt like it was lyrically present. It was aware of the trees and the buildings. And if you look at it from one side, there's this. If you look at it from the back, maybe just like uh, I forget I would, how would you, how would I angle myself? But like if if you're standing behind the sculpture, 
directly behind it. He kind of looks past the he, she, it, the thing, looks, looks off, just off of the apartment building to the left. Yes, and and the Flatiron building is right there. And there's this kind of, you know, prideful thing that's both, you know, about culture, you know, ethnic culture, and, you know, but also about pride of, of art and craft and mm. the ephemeral kind of standing up to the monumental mm. uh, structure of the Flatiron Building. And there's this great tension between that ephemeral, beautiful craft thing that is purely for the love of beauty yes. against something that's working at beautiful and is, but is also mm. very functional and, and speaks to a kind of different kind of permanence, a kind of imperial permanence. Um, that tension between those two things was yes. like wonderful for me. Fantastic, mm. yes. Mm. Um, Monica, it seems actually, um, Cornelia Parker, almost all her work is public. I mean, mm -hmm. she's, she's a very theatrical, very museum-oriented, um, very uh, performative, very um, temporary, um, uh, ephemeral, but um, uh, uh, yeah, it seems to me, without a public, we wouldn't have any Cornelia Parkers. Mm -hmm. um, Martin Perrier, um, by fulfilling this commission, mm -hmm. is taking a, a deeply invested craft activity that is, is everything that he makes. I'm not, for a moment, um, he, he, you know, the, mo the monument to Washington T. Booker is, is pretty monumental, so he, he's no stranger to, to, to large scale and, and to theatrical and public work. But um, it, it actually sort of took him, it seems that he was taken out of himself with um, Bling I into sort of being forced to work with a fabrication place in order to create something uh, on this scale and then to think through different processes of, of making that, that um, contrast to the studio-bound personal one-on-one -on -one rapport with materials that's so much the characteristic of, of, uh, of who he is and, and what he does. Um, but at the same time, they're both, um, they're both finding, their, uh, finding audience, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, as, as, as has already been said, these are, very these are public commissions. So um, which of them, which do, do you, would you, which, which of them do you feel is, um, or not, Sorry, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Um, <laughs> uh, wh wh what was your response? What did you feel of these two pieces? Uh, uh, I, when I went to the Cornelia Parker, I was not expecting to like it that much mm -hmm. because there's perhaps an element of cuteness to some of the work or some predictability to the conceit and, mm -hmm. and its execution that in the past has, has been a little underwhelming to me. Mm -hmm. But in this case... Um, it was a glorious day and this just bizarre object is just asserting itself in the mm. most incongruous of places. Yep. And I really loved it and fell for it immediately. I walked right next to it and so what was happening is that even though I knew that it was an illusion and I was very interested in the, in the scaffolding and the ballast mm. system and its exposure, mm. um, the materials themselves were speaking to other parts of my body. So I was mm -hmm. able to smell the wood, for instance, and that was conjuring or bringing all sorts of associations, mm. right? This old wood, I, th I, 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 I could imagine myself at a cottage at the beach or, I, or standing next to a barn upstate 
where places where one has been, right? So I was, my body was being transported there, but at the same time I was very aware of the fact that I was experiencing this illusion that was in, indeed not terribly generous in terms of its fulfillment of the illusion, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, and, and perhaps that's where the, tra where the transitional object component to the piece really asserts itself, which is it's, it's good enough, but it's not going to give you the whole thing. It can't give you the whole illusion because then it wouldn't be a transitional object. Um, but I was very interested in the fact that people there were, um, pe people go to see the art, but they also just go to the museum, uh, yeah. to the roof, right? Mm. Because they want to take pictures and they want to see the skyline and stuff. So a bunch of people around the sculpture were just completely ignoring it. And other people came and said, hey, would you take my picture? And I thought they were sharing my excitement about the mm -hmm. piece. And I thought, <laughs> you want to stand closer to it so I can really get it into... They're like, no, 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 we just want the skyline. They were completely ignoring right. it. Whereas the people, of course, then Madison Square Park is very different because people really use the park for yeah. all sorts of reasons. They're having lunch, they're... Uh, reading their emails, meeting with people, etc., and very few actually noticed the piece. Yeah, right. Yes, mm -hmm. and but it's also in a lawn that's being reseeded, which exactly. is uh, a mixed blessing. Um, right, and there was a very <laughs> funny sign saying "lawn resting." Lawn right? resting. Yeah, so yes. the the lawn okay. is resting. I, I did notice that. Like I it's found an actor, it rather. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I found it rather <laughs> in Congress as well. <laughs> but in a way, um, I. I I didn't feel the need to get closer to the Martin Perrier. It didn't frustrate me as much. Right. Which I find very bizarre because well that denial the, is the there. Fence or it's it's yeah. actually coated in fencing. So yes. And it's uh, even if uh, even if you were, you'd have to be pretty intrepid to. I mean, everyone loves to. Kids love mm -hmm. climbing over Henry Moore sculptures, for mm -hmm. instance, or I mean, Noguchi's and Scott Burton's are demanding to be sat upon, mm -hmm. but. Um, um, yeah, you, you, it's not. It's not. Um, this, this is not a perio that you want to climb up. Right, but it, it doesn't frustrate you. No, because it's in an eyes-only piece, really. But in fact, they're both exactly. That's the actually, exactly. both of these, although you mm -hmm. could smell the, uh, um, uh, and thank the you for words, introducing yeah. the that olfactory element uh, to Port Cornelia Park appreciation. They're, they're both, um, <laughs> they're both s very sculptural in that they're tall and three-dimensional, but they're actually both. Um, perceptual, they're both mm -hmm. optical pieces, aren't they? Mm. Uh, illusions. Mm -hmm. um, um, and they're both completely animated by the structures that they're surrounded by. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Christopher's very eloquently described the relationship to Flatiron and, and other mm -hmm. canonical buildings on Madison Square and um, uh, would-be canonical buildings in the, the new condominiums. Mm -hmm. But uh, then that immortal skyline, and then the juxtaposition of it. But they're also, um, it seems to me, picking up on Christina's notion of the, what you see as the ungenerous or the, the deconstructive, you know, psycho and the barn um, element, the, the dark side of uh, the American dream, um, then it seems to me that bling is hard not to read because of its Assyrian qualities as a kind of golden calf. Because there mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. in front of the MetLife mm -hmm. building, mm -hmm. and uh, flat iron. You know, it's 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 um, there's a little bit of um, there's the ethnic aspect, but there's also that biblical biblical mm -hmm. aspect. So mm -hmm. um, they're both kind of uh, they're both fun pieces, but dark pieces. Mm -hmm. They're both American pieces too. I mean, they both address mm -hmm. American life 
and from different, very different yeah. segments. But also, just the fact that that gold piece is described as a shackle. I wouldn't yeah. have automatically said, oh, that is a shackle. And that's the first yeah, thing I thought of when right? I saw it. Was yeah. That really? Yeah. I w the, when I saw it from across the street, I was like thinking of language to describe mm -hmm. it and for, for this. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, there's a shackle there. I was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's a reference to slavery. And mm -hmm. there's the, you know, and gold chains and the bling and da, right. da, da. And then I get up to the thing and it's just, that's what's on the text. Right. And it's interesting because it, for me, it's completely legible. And yet, there's also this, you know, the animal aspect of right. the golden mm -hmm. calf. Mm -hmm. You know, just, uh, I mean, there are just mm -hmm. lots of ways of just pure formal abstraction. I mean, you can, there's so many ways to appreciate. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have all these entry points, which I feel like with the Cornelia Parker, you have fewer points of entry that, that, that I don't want to say I wrote that it was, I wrote in my notes that it was mm -hmm. a very pat work. Um, pat and pleasant, you know, on on that particular day, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, this, the the uh, cycle reference is just blatant, like right there, mm -hmm. and I kind of didn't think about the red barn painting, the mm -hmm. paint using the paint that we use in New England for barns and stuff, um, but then I got that and I was like, okay, got it. Uh, all right, next, <laughs> and then, like there wasn't anything, mm -hmm. and I stayed there for a while. I mm -hmm. stayed there for uh, probably spent forty five minutes sitting with it and just nothing else was coming. Whereas with this, you're, uh, wh who said that being close to it, you don't want to be close to it. Um, I didn't yeah. want to so it, you yeah. don't want to be close to it. I mean, I didn't want to mm -hmm. be close to the Purrier piece. I wanted to stay, I walked across the street, I walked around it, mm -hmm. you know, around the ring, the lawn itself, follow the square. And I went back the other way on the east side and came back and mm -hmm. looked at it. Yeah. I mean, the, the um, uh, uh, Parker is, is I think for her, unusually historical in, in this. And mm -hmm. Perrier is sort of uniquely contemporary. Um, um, he, he, there's very little reference in his work to contemporary culture, but Bling mm. is, is taking us right mm. into something um, uh, hip and real and, and contemporary. Mm. Um, the um, Parker is, is uh, a very literal representation um, I think it is a multi-layered work. I, I would take issue with, with you somewhat, Christopher. I think, mm -hmm. I think the the resonance between the barn and the psycho, the stage set and the the homely. I think those are those those do bounce around each other in a successful way. But um, Puria really, even in this work, is is Puria is always playing with. Um, Actually, it's another example of, of it, it takes us right back to Hewitt and, and her white structures because here is an artist who's kind of literally post-minimal in, in, in where he is uh, time-wise, but he's somebody cracking open, uh, he's somebody cracking open the perfect finish of the reductive minimal structure to allow life and in particular his um in particular um the african american experience into mm -hmm. um and uh, into that structure um through through craft through um uh, reference uh, to um um objects that are um rich in but also mired in labor relations and and uh, etc so um yeah, they're both uh, 
Yeah, his work is so much more abstract than hers, isn't it? It's uh, it's 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 just got the it's got those resonating possibilities. Well, um, good, ladies and gentlemen. Let's let's have five minutes. I know we're running going to run over time for once, unfortunately, <laughs> but uh, uh, such a lot to talk about with with all these three artists. So, as whatever you want to say, um, let's have more comments and questions at this stage, please. Oh, okay. Hi. Um, I'm sure that if I see the show at the new museum, I'm going to agree with those. I don't think the we mic's on yet, oh. David. Hello? Sorry. Yes, no, I'm sure when I see the show at the new museum, I will agree with those severe critiques. Uh, but I, so forgive me for, for making this comment anyway, but uh, a, lot of it, a lot of the critique was about the sort of luxury, good of luxury goods quality of tapestry, the sort of uh, bespoke, highly skilled Jacquard loom, uh, history of it, or else in uh, maybe with Allegro Iboetti's use of tapestry with the, the cottage industry aspect of it. But weren't, weren't these tapestries made by some enormous uh, digital machine somewhere, um, which is basically translating Photoshop pixels into bits of textile? If that's the case, doesn't that change the meaning of how tapestry is being used uh, in comparison to how it was being critiqued? Right. Uh, that's a good point. Um, but I'm going to treat your question rhetorically and move on to... Uh, <laughs> 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 it's a great question. I mean, it's a great comment. Yeah. Hi. I want to um, just address the, the psycho barn. I, um, when I see the piece from the street and you see Norman Bates on the top of the Met, I think it's pretty witty funny um, kind of um, situation where then suddenly it's like you're in the motel and you're going to be murdered. You know, it's sort of, I think, in that way of the theatrical, the, the cinematic part of that piece, um, I think is very powerful for a public work. And there's a humor to it because of there's this, you know, filmic character that we all have seen or we know about and um, it's on top of the treasures of the whole United States, and it's, it's up there. So I think there's a really interesting um, way that she's addressing the building and the treasures, and then also um, the, um, then when you're up there and you, you can look out from the bridge, or from, sorry, from the, um, from the porch, it's like you become Norman Bates and your view of the world. Um, I just think it's a really interesting way to use cinema and also, and the prop of, I mean, it should, there's no reason why it should be a completed house because yeah. it's just the, the facade. Exactly. And, of course, one of the countless treasures in the Met are going to be works of Edward Hopper. So there's a, a circularity in the mm -hmm. fact that, um, um, obviously, Hitchcock's vision uh, is indebted to the art of Edward Hopper and then all comes mm -hmm. what goes around comes around. Yes, Dennis. Um, I just wanted to uh, make mention of the Makuga work, which... Um, you had a very uh, intense conceptual critique of it, but nobody kind of mentioned the physical presence of these things, which I found, uh, especially the one with the snake, um, these were not just tapestries, they were like really three-dimensional photographs. I mean, they were the surface was incredibly sculptural and the subtlety of the weave depicting um, the grayscale of the photograph was, you know, as 
it, it was more accurate than a computer uh, um, image of that photograph. It was like so complex and had an incredible impact seeing that as a photographic image, but really feeling how, I mean, it was wool, it was like really soft, and you had this, uh, and also I thought that the images seemed inherently political on, on some level, so there was also that aspect of it, and I just wanted to mention that I thought that those um, were incredibly, had an incredible physical presence. Great, thank you. And by the way, it's very gratifying to have former people who've been up here on the panel uh, enjoying, um, sitting with the audience and enjoying it this evening. <laughs> say a shout out for Mario Navis, Dennis Carden, who just spoke, well, and David Brody. Yeah, who I just want to um, address what you just said, because I didn't see the show, uh, but I did see one of those tapestries, or not one of those tapestries, but her work, we both did, at Freeze last year, and I just remember being so dazzled by the physicality of them and also just so overwhelmed by what it must have taken to pay, just the, the um, well, the execution, the cost of it. it. Just the whole thing was just like so kind of overwhelming as a produced object that it was, in a way, I couldn't get past the physicality of it to even enjoy what the pieces meant. I sort of didn't care. It was like, how much did this cost? And who put the money up for it? And this is amazing technically. And who's buying these? I mean, um, and I think that's a big detraction, even though it was extremely seductive. Yeah, but of course, the Perrier and the um, Parker don't come cheap either. But they're, they're, it, tells <laughs> it, it tells us who's paying for it. The Madison Square Conservancy has paid for this one. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm ashamed to admit I don't know who paid for the Parker, but I'm sure it's a, I'm sure whoever it was, yeah. Bloomberg maybe, somebody, whoever. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm yeah. sure they'd get plenty of credit. So, okay. But, I mean, th things have to be made. Things cost money. And um, just enjoy them. You, you bought your ticket to get in. <laughs> I mean, uh, unlike us, you don't have a press pass, so you paid money to go and see mm -hmm. the uh, Bakuga? No, you got a pass. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> then you're right. You're right to worry. Who's paying for this? Yes, yes. You should have been paying for it, but uh, you weren't. So who's paying for this? Right. Okay. Yes. I, I just yes. wanted to add an alternative impression of the Perrier um, installation. I live about five blocks from the park, and I walk by... I walk through the park probably three times a week. So I watch it being built, and then I've watched people um, you know, collect in different ways, given the weather. But it, it's by no means, like my people are always talking about it. I'm, I eavesdrop mm. all the way through the park. People are giving their impressions. It looks like an animal, you know, or it, um, it sits this way, or they respond to the materials. And it's even though I guess you can't get directly under it because of the the grass is growing back in. There's basically it's surrounded by activity, and um, so I just wanted to say that's my impression. Uh, I, I got a little. I guess there was a different feeling maybe from the panelists, but just wanted to share that. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a marvelous uh, note upon which to end and say how much we look forward to seeing you all again in September for uh, season two here at the Brooklyn Public Library. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you, David.